All right, saints, we are in Luke chapter 9. If you could turn there with us, Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 50. That is our text for today. Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 50 is our text. All right. We've been going through the gospel of Luke together, uh, and we are almost at the end of Luke chapter 9. And I believe when I'm done with Luke 9, uh, I believe Wayne's picking up at Luke 10. So I look forward to that. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 46 to 50. Starting in verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he he who is least among you, among you all, is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Lord, we need you. We need you. We need you. We need you to open our eyes. We need you to allow us to hear what the Spirit has to say. Would you allow our hearts to be engaged? Would you allow distractions, Lord God, to cease? Would you allow our minds to be fertile for your word, our hearts to be fertile for your word? We pray that the enemy would not come and snatch away what was sown, but that the word of God would take root. God, there may may be someone here who does not know you, who has not come to saving faith in you. I pray that you would radically change their hearts. Swap it out, Lord God, the heart of stone for a covenant heart today. And we pray for those of us who are saints, who are wounded in sin, Wounded in distractions and weak and frail, God, I pray that you would be strong. And Lord, forgive us of our sins, for they are many, but we thank you for your mercy that is more. And so would you be with us today, Lord God? Would you clear in our minds what it means to be great? Would you help us to understand what greatness is in your kingdom? That we would not be duped into the kingdom of man, but that we would realize we are of the kingdom of God. Be with us today, Lord. We're tired of leaving church and being the same. We're tired, Lord God, of going back to the routines of life, having the same attitudes, having the same arguments, having the same, you know, uh, issues in our lives that we repeatedly go to when you've given us your word to rise above the circumstances that are before us. And so I pray that that will take place as the word is given And I pray, Lord God, that your people will be engaged. I pray, Lord God, that your people would awake, Lord God, from slumber and and, and be alive. Make us alive, Lord. We pray. We need you. Quicken our soul to repentance, to obedience. We need you, Lord. Apart from you, we can do nothing. You are the vine and we are the branches. And Father, you are the vine dresser. Do that today. In the field of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if that prayer was too long for y'all, maybe you need to pray more often. Because I don't apologize for long prayers. 
especially during meals. And, you know, like when I, we have people over for dinner and they're hungry and I do one of them five-minute joints. Some people get very upset. But we need to be a people of prayer. And corporate prayer is coming up too, by the way. We'll have two weeks of prayer where me and Wayne will be leading the congregation in a pastoral prayer over the congregation. And so we would encourage you, if you're a person of prayer or if not, come to the corporate gathering of prayer. We'll be, we'll be announcing that to you soon enough. Well, we'll take a break in between our groups where we'll reserve two Wednesdays of prayer to our God. So make sure you come and pray. So what does it mean to be great is before us today. That is the question. Augustine said, God is not greater if you reverence him, but you are greater if you serve him. <laughs> He's right. So God's greatness stands alone, whether you recognize it or not. But what about our greatness and how do we objectively measure greatness from our end? Now, I asked chat GPT this question. I asked, what is greatness? And this is what the artificial intelligence had to say. Quote, it says, Greatness is a concept that can have different meanings depending on the context in which it is used. In general, greatness refers to exceptional qualities or achievements that set someone or something apart from others. It can refer to outstanding abilities, skills, or accomplishments in any field or area such as sports, music, art, science, business, or leadership. Then it continues to say, greatness can also be associated with characteristics such as wisdom, courage, compassion, and humility, which are seen as virtues that elevate individuals above the ordinary. In this sense, greatness is not only about personal achievements, but also about positive impact one has on others and the world. Ultimately, the definition of greatness is subjective and can vary depending on cultural, social, and personal values. What one person considers great may not be the same as another person's definition of greatness. That's ch chat GPT for you. Now, can there be an objective standard for greatness? All that's fine, but it's limited and temporal. I do believe Jesus answers this in our text today. He makes it very clear what greatness is. It's not found in abilities. It's not found in skills. It's not found in accomplishments. It's not found in sports, music, art, science, business, or leadership. It's not found in man's wisdom, in our courage. It's not found in compassion or humility. It's not found in personal achievements or the positive impact one has on others or the world. Jesus in our text tells us objectively what greatness is and where it comes from. That's what we'll be looking into today. So our outline for today, number one, the issue in verse 46, we see an issue happening in verse 46. Point number two, we see an illustration in verses 47 through 48. So we have the issue, point number one, point number two, the illustration, and point number three, we see the imperious, verses 49 to 50. Imperious, like, in, in, like an imperial, 
right? And the imperious in verses 49 to 50. So those are our three points for today. In point number one, the issue in verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. It's usual for there to be an argument about who is the greatest, isn't it? It's no different today. The debate of whether Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the greatest is a very heavy debate in our time, which I believe is no debate at all. <laughs> Just a heads up. But when Luke speaks of an argument at first glance, it could look like a heated debate in our text. But in the original language, it speaks of reasoning which could have been a heated debate, but it could have just been an intense conversation. In this debate, according to how the word argument is understood, it is used to reason in order to come to a conclusion by working through conflicting ideas, which, by the way, our culture is not good at today. There was a conflict of ideas being verbalized, and the topic of discussion was who is the greatest among us. And so the Greek word for greatest is where we get the word mega. You heard that before, right? The word mega, we use it to say mega star, mega phone, mega bite, or mega dose. <laughs> that one was funny to me. I'm like, wow, I might as well throw that in there. <laughs> big, big is what it means. So it's a question about who is the biggest, the greatest, the best, the above average is what he's getting at here, or what the disciples were talking about. So who is above average and exceeds the norm in quantity or excellence? Who would be the greatest among us? What we have to remember is that God functions with a different metric than we do when measuring greatness. He does. I have two examples from Scripture that will help us understand how God measures greatness. A first example comes in terms of the quality of character. God measures that differently than we do. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Some of you know what I'm getting at here. 1 Samuel 16. The Lord made it clear to Samuel the prophet and judge at that time that he has rejected Saul who was king, if you know the story. And so because the Lord rejected Saul, he told Samuel to call on Jesse, who had sons. Samuel, the prophet and judge, saw Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and said, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. So at first glance, Samuel saw Eliab and said, he got to be the one. But the Lord said in 1 Samuel 16, 7, one of my favorite verses, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Jesse called for the other brothers, and one by one, the Lord did not choose them. They look anointed, they look qualified, but God had a different way of measuring so let's look at how God does it. In 1 Samuel 16, 11 through 13, you're already there. Verse 11, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy 
and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So the least likely to be chosen was chosen by God. The one who didn't look qualified was qualified. Very encouraging. The quality of the heart, the internal, was considered more than the stature of the man. Another example, when we talk in terms of quantity, right? Because sometimes we think that the more you have, the more greatness you have in your life, the more you attain, right? It builds up your reputation, your resume. That's not the metric God uses. In Gideon's uh, story in Judges chapter 7, let's turn there. If you need help, turn to your neighbor and say, I need help to get to Judges if you don't know where it's at. Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Judges 7, starting in verse 1. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. You see what God's concerned with here. He wants there to be less people to fight this so that he can get the glory. Verse 3, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. I would have been like, come on, man, we're about to go to war. We need as much as possible. Too many for the Lord. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who, who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So he was left with 300 men. From thousands to only 300. So the least likely to win the battle was chosen by God. Quantity or having much is not a prerequisite for greatness. But doesn't, that doesn't feel right, does it? I want to have enough for my bills. I want to have enough in my bank account. It's not fun when you go to the bank account and you see it's $300 in the negative. Quantity or having much is not a prerequisite for greatness. The world's way of measuring greatness often comes with quantifying things. And sadly, we have made that mistake in the church. 
Later, Jesus confronts a modern-day issue we face today in the church when trying to reason or find out or quantifying what revival is. In Luke 15.10, where Jesus deals with Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling at him because of receiving and eating with sinners, Jesus said in Luke 15.10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Yet, we live in a church culture that's discouraged if one sinner repents. Because of the lie of quantity as what is considered to be mega or great. If one is revived from being dead in their sins, all of heaven rejoices. But many in the visible church are discouraged. With this happening over here at Kunzler and, and all that, and I saw very few people coming in this morning, I could have been like, man, this service is going to be whack today. Ain't nobody going to be here today. If we thought in terms of the flesh, yeah. That would be greatly discouraging. What if only 20 people showed up today? We only need one. So it doesn't matter how many. God's not into that economy of thinking. Greatness to God is much different. It's not in quantity. It's in the quality. He's more concerned with that. It's not how good our worship sounds. It's how we worship, why we worship that God is more concerned with. Now, I love my worship team. They're amazing, right? And you can see that they're progressively just growing and God is providing for us. But don't get it twisted. The excellence that is being produced, God's not into that. He's into their particular hearts as to why they worship. That's why prayer is important. That's why worship is important before you worship. I don't know if you knew that. If you're just coming here to worship, you're missing it. You should be coming in here as a worshiper. Rather than waiting for the worship team to make you a worship, because that can't happen. Worship doesn't produce worship. God produces worship. So God quantifies. He, he has a different metric as to what is great and what is authentic. If one is revived from being dead in sins, all of heaven rejoices, and so should we. This is why I am careful about what we deem to be revival. We can't make the mistake of seeking revivals to be revived and forget that God revives, not revivals. <laughs> God wants to be sought, not experiences. I'm all about like, man, if I'm worshiping and I, I'm, I'm feeling it and I, I, I thank God and my heart leaps for joy because of his love and his grace and it does something to me, praise God. But that is a result, not the means. We are to seek God, not revivals or the masses. To the religious revivals, J.C. Rao said we should, he says, neither lightly condemn nor lightly approve them. In other words, be careful. This hits home for some of us today who have wrongly sought our worth in what the world considers greatness or success. We also have to be careful with what many in the visible church say is greatness and successful. Wealth, position, social status, class, quantity, influence have become standards we use to know our worth and value. But that's not the case with God. God's economy of what is great does not match the world. 
And God's value system disagrees with our sinful hearts. So the issue here is that the reasoning of the disciples in our text came from a wrong view of greatness. Jesus deals with this by using an illustration that confronts the issue in verses 47 through 48 to our second point, the illustration, verses 47 and 48. Verse 47 reads, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now let's pause and remember who we are reading about here. Jesus is God. <laughs> he has a different way of quantifying greatness. The God who picked David as king and brought Gideon's men from thousands to 300 is here in our text. Same person, same God, same way of viewing and measuring things. Not only does he have a different economy than us, but Jesus could also read what was in their hearts. We see that in our text. He knew the reasoning in their hearts. He heard the reasoning taking place in their conversations as we could. We could have done the same thing, heard the same thing. But Jesus is the only one who could read their hearts. He knew the processing behind the verbal. Jesus knew why they concluded on their opinions, why the debate was taking place. So Luke uses the same word in verse 46, argument, for both argument and reasoning in verse 47. I was confused by that. Why did the translators not stick to the word argument in verse 47? Because it's the same Greek word. But the same word for reasoning and arguing in our text in verses 46 and 47. Verse 47, the word's modified by the word heart. So the word heart modifies the word for argument or reasoning. So in the Greek, it tells you that this word is being affected by another word in the same sentence. So it changes to reasoning because what it's talking about is not hearing what's happening, but that Jesus knows what's happening in their hearts. Right? So you can hear an argument. Me and Lynette have argued plenty of times. Yeah. Yeah, we have. <laughs> When I was a youth pastor back in the day, I remember we had an intense fellowship. That's what we used to call it, right? <laughs> intense fellowship upstairs. And we had a, a, a youth, uh, Lydia. It was Lydia. And she came into the house. We didn't know. And we were going at it. You know, we were doing our thing. Uh, having a, a very heated, uh, not heated, it was intense, intense fellowship. And <laughs> we came downstairs and we were like, how long were you here? She's like, long enough, you know. Like, you heard, yeah, I heard everything. I was like, wow. Like, okay. Thank God I don't curse. Thank God I don't do anything crazy. But she heard everything. She, she heard with her ears the differences, the debates, the argument. But only God could know what's going on in the heart. So that's why it's modified to reasoning because God was seeing exactly the Lord Jesus Christ was seeing what's happening in the hearts of his disciples. Jesus wants to deal with the core issue that gave birth to the verbal reasoning here in our text. A great reminder that what you say matters. But what is more important is why you say what you say and how you say it that matters. So what did Jesus see in our hearts? The illustration helps us to see what's going on. He took a child and put him by his side. Now, this discussion about who was the greatest was recorded in other accounts. This discussion isn't new. It, it, it's, it happened in, uh, elsewhere in, in the Gospels. If you go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 6, 
We'll see a different angle on this. Matthew 18, 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So who is the greatest? Well, humble yourselves. <laughs> You're too preoccupied about what's great. Then in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, turn there with us, Mark 9, 33 through 37. Verse 33 of Mark 9, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Check this out, verse 34, but they kept silent. That tells you what's up, like. I'm not going to tell you, Lord, I'm not trying to get in trouble. <coughs> Verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They knew they were wrong. Yeah. And he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me so in considering what is mega and great jesus took a child and put him on his side so let's think about this what would have happened if jesus had put one of his disciples to his side as an illustration what if he put peter or john i said okay just like this brother here you need to be like him how do you think John or Peter would have been? They would have been like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like, it's all me. Y'all got to be like me. I was right in our argument and debate about who was the greatest. He's using me to talk about who is the greatest. He didn't choose any of them. That would have been not helpful to the disciples. It would have caused more beef. So he took a child, put him on his side, and then used him to illustrate his point. Instead of using one of the disciples, he used a child like using David, who was chosen. Now, a child is dependent. A child will be a picture of humility. A child is not fully developed. A child is inexperienced. A child is immature. Y'all who have kids know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, then maybe you're the one immature, meaning prayer. Powerless. Children are powerless, right? They don't have power yet. They're not ready for responsibilities. So this illustration goes against what they deem to be great. The child was to serve as a mirror to go against the false view that greatness relied on the person's stature. So what does it mean to be great? What does it look like? And most importantly, how can we adopt the correct understanding of what greatness is in our hearts? Philip Brooks said this, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature 
that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. I like that. We naturally tend to estimate what it means to be great incorrectly. And it comes most in our need to be affirmed by others or by what we have attained. Who or what do you see as determining your greatness? If it is the world, then to, you know, to be considered great, you need to find your sense of feeling of worth and greatness through what you attain, through the status you have in the world, that whatever they deem as great. Like you're adopting a worldview to consider yourself and affirm yourself to be great by temporal means. It will be the opposite of a child here. So to be great in the world means that you're independent. It means that you have to take pride in yourself. It means you have to have self-confidence to a fault, I would say. There's nothing wrong with self-confidence. There's nothing wrong with being confident. There's everything wrong with being too confident. Filling up your resume, attaining power, seeking influence and positions. If it is God who determines your greatness, though, then you will find your sense of greatness by knowing the smallness of it in light of who God is, which doesn't depend on the quantity or temporal measurements that have no eternal significance. Greatness, significance, is found in your smallness, in your weakness, in your frailties, in your shortcomings. That's where you find true greatness. Because you quickly realize, I'm not that great. I'm actually weak. Prideful people won't look in the mirror too long. You look in the mirror long enough, you'll find something wrong with you. What is God's word? The mirror. You look in his word long enough, you will find something off. And it doesn't feel good, does it? Why we always got to preach the Bible, man? I, I hardly feel good when I leave Christ alone. Well, you should be encouraged that God showed you something that needs worked on. Because if something broke, it got to get fixed. If I send the car to the mechanic shop and he knew that the tire's about to fall off and he didn't fix it and I'm on the highway, <laughs> that's a problem, right? We come to church to hear God's word together so that we can be sanctified changed and renewed and challenged to be better worshipers of God. That's greatness. Greatness is found in your insignificance. When I think of what I am without God, it humbles me. And God is magnified and exalted. You see, when I think of God who's holy and great, and I think of how minute I am and how weak I am and frail I am, there's greatness in that because now I'm leaning on him rather than taking pride in my own self. The child's smallness at his side illustrates true greatness, not because the child is small, but because of who is standing beside the child. Luke 9, 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, this is our text, took a child and put him by his side, verse 48, and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the child's greatness importance was tethered to Christ and his name. It would be the same as an ambassador 
An ambassador is important, not because of who they are, but because of who they represent. Greatness is not found within ourselves as ambassadors of Christ, but it's in who we stand beside. Now, this goes against what many teach today in the visible church. We must distinguish our identity in Christ from Christ. That's very important. Word of faith, prosperity gospel, all about your identity. And man, it feels good. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a friend of God. I'm a champion. I'm a winner. Man, you go out there, you feel like you can beat up any demon in the world. You have destiny. You have purpose. Yeah, and they fill you up with all this stuff. And it's like, well, you know, I haven't heard of Jesus in that. What about Jesus? What about him? What did he do? Well, he lowered himself. He suffered. And he guarantees suffering for those of us who follow him. That's why the doctrine of suffering, the theology of suffering, runs in the face of a prosperity gospel. Because it's saying that your identity is wrapped in suffering. You will suffer. You will be rejected. You will not feel good as a Christian. Been there? You'll have headaches. You'll have backaches. You'll have times at your job where you don't want to be Christian. You'll have friends do you wrong. The Christian life is not a guarantee that all will be well. So it can't, my identity can't be wrapped up in results. It's wrapped up in who Christ is. So we have to distinguish identity in Christ from Christ. The greatness of our call as believers comes from the one we believe in and not from us who believe. What is within us? What is within us is not from us. The third person of the Trinity is not from us. That's the only valuable thing we have as Christians. The fact that we have the third person of the Trinity in us. Whoever receives those, using this child, who's dependent, not fully developed, inexperienced, immature, powerless, not ready for responsibilities, whoever receives him receives Christ. So greatness comes from God because God is great. That is where our sense of importance should come from. Now, Jesus is showing them that the reasoning about who is great is wrong because they should have concluded that Christ is the one truly great. He's the one they're beside. So to look for greatness in yourself is different from what Christ is saying in our text. Instead of the perpetuated lie of self-importance, Christians should find their importance in Christ. Brandon did an amazing job last week, didn't he? Wasn't he encouraging? He highlighted our inabilities and our weaknesses through the text. That's what the text revealed, and the implication is that we who are unable and weak can lean in and trust in Christ. So before discussing how to walk this out, we should spend much time on the finished work that allows us to work out our salvation. How do we work this out? Rather, we should look into the finished work to know how to work our salvation out. Because a lot of times you hear a sermon, it's, it's, it's a to-do list. This is what you got to do. You got to abstain from sexual immorality. You got to not be greedy. You got to whatever. God's not into that. He's into your heart. Why do you want to do these things? Why do you keep falling into these things? 
What's going on in your heart where Christ is not enough? The child here is used to say that greatness is not found in ability, attainment, stature, but rather it is found in the one who is represented. And so the beauty of the gospel is that it invites all people, whether wealthy, poor, wise, foolish, to the table of fellowship. No one is greater than the other in the kingdom of God. We are all one in Christ. And what is incredible is that Jesus shifts from using the child to using himself to illustrate the point about what God considers great. And it highlights the importance of humility. Then he says, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Interesting that Jesus says this in his humiliation. Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant. In his lowered state, he says that when one receives him, they receive the one who sent him. Now in John 14, 28, Jesus said that the father was greater than he was, which was true because of his humble state and becoming a man. And Jesus considered himself the representative of the father. This highlights that the father was greater than he was. And so the humility of Jesus to use a child to illustrate this point of who's great, a child who is weak, a, a child who isn't fully developed. Then he says, okay, I'm also an example to follow. Because at the time, he was weak. He was lowered. He was amongst sinners. Isaiah 53 says that he was counted among the transgressors. So not only did Jesus lower himself, he counted himself among sinners. The God of the universe. John 13, he washed the feet of even Judas. He lowered himself that low. He was numbered, lowered among those who were deserving of judgment. Even Jesus considered the Father's greatness as his source of identity and greatness. So in placing the child at his side and Jesus humbling himself, he illustrated that the least is the greatest because of the one they represent. So in contrast to mega, which is great, Jesus now speaks of those who are least. That's where we get the word mikros in the Greek. We get the word mikros and use it for micro, microchip, microscopic, small is where we get this word. He's confronting their reason about things that look insignificant. So a child looks insignificant when it comes to adult matters, right? We tell a child, hey, this is for adult. You need to go to your room. Stop interrupting. Right? Like, Dad, you know, like, dog, I'm trying to talk to my homie right now. You know, like, you're interrupting. Can you wait? Can you ask, hey, Dad, excuse me? Right? We teach our kids that. Because adults are talking. Yet Jesus uses a child here as someone considered insignificant. But let me ask you this. What if that child's father was the king? You wouldn't be like, yo, go to your room. Your head could be chopped off for that. Right? So that child's identity now is different because of who they belong to. So your reception as a child of the king would look differently. The child's significance is known and demands attention because they are a child of the king. Wearsby said the key to greatness is not found in position of power, but in character. And I think he's right. 
Our character and our worth comes from Christ. The disciples forgot what is great by not finding their importance in who Christ is. They were concerned with which one of them was the greatest, forgetting that it was Christ beside them who was great. There is no greatness outside of God. If Jesus considered himself lower in his humiliation, how much more of us who have sinned and have faults? Something that Augustine said, he said, for those who would learn God's ways, Humility is the first thing. Humility is the second thing. Humility is the third thing. If you can't humble yourself and see that you're micro compared to God and are unwilling to change to be more Christ-like, saints, you haven't begun to even mature yet. You haven't. Like Spurgeon said, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. You're off. I would attribute this to a lack of communion with God. How can you measure properly if you're not with the Lord? If you're not spending time in prayer? If you're not reading his word and knowing how great he is and how small you are? Because isn't that pride? Pride makes you feel like you're big. Pride is the overestimation of oneself which the disciples again struggle with when seeing someone outside doing what they were doing. We see that in verses 49 and 50, our last point, the imperious. In verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Now by imperious, I mean marked by arrogant assurance. And remember that John's answering Jesus here. He's not learning his lesson. The disciples overestimated themselves again. They saw someone casting out demons in the name of Jesus and they tried to stop him. We don't know who this person was, but it's clear that they weren't traveling with Christ and his followers and his disciples. And they tried to stop them because they did not follow with the disciples. Again, they missed the point that Jesus had just made about the child. The power of casting out demons does not come from within them. It comes from the one they represent. Who were they to tell somebody else using the name of the Lord that's doing good work that, hey, we need to stop him because he's not with us. He's not with the clique. Saints, there's danger in glorifying your abilities and talents over the one you're supposed to represent. So have you found your identity in your gifts and talents or in the one you represent? When people find their identity in their talents and gifts, and yet their prayer lives are thin. These people that find their identity in their gifts and talents in the church, they're probably the most busiest in the church. Busy, busy, busy doing everything in the church that needs to be done. Busy, busy, busy doing ministry at a college ministry or uh, out in the mission field. If you're all about labor and work and no devotion to Christ, that's a form of pride. Your identity is wrapped in what you do, not in who you have. The disciples fell into this trap. Being beside Jesus just doesn't mean you're standing there. It means that you're in communion with him. In Matthew 7, remember that story? Now everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. 
On that day, they will say to me, did we not prophesy, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And what does he say? I never knew you. You're busy. You're using my name. You're busy. When's the last time we talked? When's the last time we had communion? When's the last time you sat there and just worshiped? But you come on church every Sunday, you're here all the time serving, serving, serving. He might say to you, I never knew you. What matters? If your identity does not come from the one you represent, Christ Jesus, you will have an overestimated view of yourself. And that's exactly what Jesus is dealing with here. You're not standing at your height against some higher nature that will show you the real smallness of your greatness. This is what communion does. Have you taken time to look at the Lord Jesus and count yourself as nothing in comparison to his glory so that you can glory in his glory? I believe that's what Jesus is getting at here. What does it mean to be great? I'll close with this. It means to know our insignificance outside of Christ and our significance in Christ. Have you taken time to see how whack you are? Do you see yourself like that child? Weak, immature, unable, so that the one beside you can show you how much you need him. That's what he's getting at here, saying. So be careful with your affirmations. Be careful with your identity. And most importantly, because God is holy, be careful with sin. For those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus, God wants you to live perfectly. You know that. God wants you to have no mistakes in your life. He doesn't want you to sin. and He's demanding that you never sin again. And he's expecting you on the day of judgment to look at you and say, you're perfect, come in. You're clean, come in. So if we're sinning, we're blowing it. He doesn't want somebody coming to him with his baggage of fault. So what did God do for us in light of the fact that we all do sin and don't deserve it? Well, he sent Jesus who lives sinless. So when he looks at us at the day of judgment, he's not looking at our sin, our mistakes. He's looking at Christ. So if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ here today, you stand before God guilty with a bunch of fault. But in Christ, our faults and our sins have been taken to the cross. And Jesus declares us not guilty. So I pray that that will be you here today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you'll be with us. Help us today to apply, Lord God, this real sense of humility that we need to have when considering greatness. May our insignificance point to your greatness so that we can know that being great, Lord God, is to be in you. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said.